Broadcasting live to the world now. It's Sheila Zielinski. Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, end-time watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this October 20th, 2015 edition of the Sheila Zielinski Show, I broadcast Monday to Friday. That's weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And on Saturday nights on Worldwide Christian Radio and WINB at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. And there is a phone number for that Saturday night show. There's a call-in number there as well. So please do go to weekendvigilante.com and click on that radio archive tab on the menu. And you can get all that information there. We have a lot of new listeners. I want to thank everyone for tuning in from across the globe. And do, if you have not already, sign up for my YouTube channel. Add me on Twitter and Facebook. All my social media tabs are there on the website at the top, on the pink bar at the very top right-hand corner. Do add me there as well as, if you're not following my podcast, do so. And I am told that Apple, that is Apple the company, is still working on the app. And as frustrating as that is, the episodes will be playing very shortly. So do bear with us. Have patience. We'll get this app figured out in the month of October. I just want to remind everybody, I'm going to sound like a broken record all month because I cannot stress to you the importance of you finding a way to Live Oak, Florida for November 13th, 14th, and 15th. Live Oak, Florida, folks. That's right. Augusto Perez, the Appearance Ministries. I cannot say enough about this man. I highly regard him as one of the most powerful men of God. And please do pray about it. Find a way. Ask God to make a way where there is no way to get you to the most powerful weekend, maybe even of your life. It's going to be transformative. It's going to be life-changing. I know God is going to move in a powerful way, a life-changing event. You can mark my word, and I'll stake my reputation on it. That's how, that's how much I believe in this event. So do find a way to get there. That information banner is finally on my website on the right-hand side. If you go down a ways, it says Augusto Perez event. So do check that out. You all know my guest. He has been a long time friend of the show, but he was also my co-host for a whole year in the very beginnings of my radio broadcasting career. Love this man. I highly regard him as a true mentor. He is a walking encyclopedia. I don't think I know a smarter, more intellectual man that knows everything about everything. It is my pleasure to welcome back the one, the only, the geopolitical expert and highly renowned climatologist, one of the men instrumental in exposing climate gate, Dr. Timothy Ball. Tim, welcome back to the program. It is always, as you know, a pleasure. 
Thank you, Sheila, and thanks for the opportunity as always, and thanks for all of the very good work you're doing through your book, Green Gospel, and through your uh, ministry, and fighting against the attacks upon Western values. You know, Osama bin Laden said the West had lost its moral direction. He was absolutely right. The answer, though, is we don't want his moral direction either. <laughs> and the attacks upon uh, free speech, upon the whole U.S. ideal, but particularly the attacks on Christianity that, that, that requires so much defense. And you're right in the vanguard of that. Thank you. Well, thank you for that, Tim. Well, of course, we have a lot going on. We've just got this globally orchestrated Caligula-level craziness. We've got a lot coming at us. And of course, in Canada, Canadians know that we had our elections for prime minister. And in a stunning political defeat, Stephen Harper out in is good old Pierre Trudeau's son, the as I call him, the devilish Justin Trudeau. I mean, that is a stunning upset is I am just sheerly shocked that someone like Justin Trudeau, Mr. Carbon Tax, I mean, he is just a devil to me. What's your take on what just happened, Tim? Well, the sad part is that uh, it, it was actually very predictable, partly because, of course, the scourge of today's politics, the mainstream media, had they're the kingmakers and the kingbreakers, and they had chosen who they wanted to win, and it's almost always, of course, uh, somebody from the left, and they worked on that and worked on it and worked on it. And it included uh, not only promotion of Trudeau, but attacks upon Harper. It was a combination of those things, but it works because it reflects what the Bible talks about and Christianity talks about, the easy road. The road to, to hell is, is paved with good intentions. It's, it's a easy route. It's like I always say that there's two ways to get ahead. You can pull yourself up or you can push the other person down. Well, guess which is easier? And, of course, what we saw yesterday was that a rejection of what the rest of the world or the majority of the rest of the world were saying about Harper's government where it got huge praise because it uh, had the least damage to its banking system uh, in the 2008 crash. It was reducing its deficit. It was putting its f fiscal house in order. We'd love to have all these things, but we can only afford so much. And, of course, they paid the price for that uh, austerity. It's the battle that's going on in Europe right now where the Greeks are saying, to heck with it. We'll, we'll, we'll take the money from the rich and we'll, we'll spend, spend, spend. Other countries, uh, Portugal, have taken the austerity, but even there it's being questioned. And it fills what you know, Lord Macaulay, who was a British historian, this is attributed to him, but he, he, he probably didn't actually write it, but it's still worth repeating. But this was written in 1857, and it said, A democracy cannot survive as a permanent form of government. It can last only until its citizens discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority who vote will vote for the candidates promising the greatest benefits from the public purse with the result that a democracy will always collapse from loose fiscal policies, always followed with a dictatorship. 
And of course, that's precisely what went on here in Canada in, in the election yesterday. Now, the, the other interesting side of it, of course, is that parties that got too narrow in their focus, the what I call the one-note parties, and in this case, it was the Green Party, completely rejected, only maintained the one seat, and that was the seat of the leader. And, and of course, uh, the party is all about the leader, as all of her pronouncements state. And I think one of the things that did her harm was that she came out and advocated a two-child per family policy, which, of course, as you know, and in, in your book, goes back to the eugenics and the control of population and what the Chinese did. So yesterday was uh, really disturbing in many ways, but really not surprising uh, considering the nature of, of humanity and, and the loss of, of Christian morality and, and a recognition that the harder route is the best route, but often the one that fewer people choose. For your American um, listeners, Canada was created out of people that uh, did not want to become Republicans in, in America. A lot of them fled across the, the border into Canada. They're still here today. They, they're called United Empire Loyalists. And of course, the name tells you everything about what's going on. As always, with separations like that, as with divorces, the children are the innocent bystanders. And uh, just one example of a group that became caught up in this division were the Acadians, who are a French-speaking, uh, well, not really French-speaking, but they have their own language. But they, they're Acadians in the uh, maritime provinces, and they're akin to the Cajuns in Louisiana. And um, so the, these are the, the fallouts from all of these things that happen in history. Canadians do not get to vote for their leader. And to me, that's an absolute travesty. All I get to do is vote for a local representative of a political party. And it's entirely possible that I could like the local representative, but not like the leader of the party who would become the prime minister. Yet I have no say in that. But it's because Canada, as a hybrid country, is uh, made up of uh, English, French, and American parts. And unfortunately, I think that we selected most of the bad parts to create it. And so we stumble along and we survive on what I call the complacency of superabundance. That Canada, with 38 million people, which is the same population as California, is the second largest country in, in the world and has such enormous resources that we simply live off the profits of selling off those resources. Uh, and um, so we, we live in, in a dreamland here, and, and it's very nice, but it doesn't face the realities. The American system tried to get around that parliamentary problem by only allowing the two-party system. And um, you, you see that, the, the reality of that, and when you look at what Canada's confronted with. And what, but what's happening is that the left-wing parties are, are the Green Party, the NDP or New Democratic Party, and the Liberal Party. And they are um, fighting amongst each other, which is unusual. What normally happens, as in the U.S., is that the Democrats will all stick together, that the party becomes more important than the, the individual, whereas the conservatives will fight amongst each other. 
And that's, um, of course, perfectly natural when you think about the nature of a conservative. A conservative is a person who believes in individuality and free will. And, and of course, they're less likely to go along with a party, hook, line, and sinker. They will challenge things. And the leader of the, the conservative party in Canada summed it up once when he said that they call an election and the conservatives circle the wagons and shoot inwards. And you see that going on in, in uh, with the Republicans. You saw it with the Conservatives in Britain uh, and under Prime Minister Cameron. So uh, these, these are all manifestations of how we've got where we are and, and um, the rules by which we live. And it's part of the ongoing evolution to a better system and a better form of government. And the best opportunity for all of that is America. America was the first one to challenge the old world monarchy, not having free speech, not being able to own a private ownership of land and all of these things. But it's now under attack because, of course, there are always those people on the right, the monarchists, right, Prince Charles and the gang, and the people on the left who both want total central government control. And it's ironic that people forget that you can have totalitarianism of the left and the right. And what we really want is what the founding fathers were trying to achieve. That is a true republic based upon a uh, Christian morality. And that, that's where we're at now. Well, this left-right paradigm really, Tim, is nothing more than a political ploy. Both parties are owned by the same elite puppet masters. This new world is really based on a model of collectivism, I guess, because it's really, well, and collectivism is not a very entrenched word, but people wrote a lot about it in days gone by. It's the opposite of individualism. So it's like a communism, fascism, and a socialism, and a progressivism rolled up into one massive ball of collectivism. And at the root it's the same ideology, the greater good, the moral imperative. We've talked about that. The state yep. should be the all-powerful genie, greater good. Rights are granted by the state. They're not God-given. These ruthless, right. dictating megalomaniacs throughout history, as we've talked about, Tim, they've always fought for dominance. But it's really the left-right wing of the same ugly bird of collectivism. Exactly. And, and, and of course, one of the things that's um, in- interesting is that the reason that the Founding Fathers put Christianity at the, at the base of the moral requirement for their leadership and their government and their country was because Christianity is the only religion that is built around the concept of free will that God gave every individual free will to decide whether they were going to obey his rules and laws or not, and to determine their future. And, and of course, that goes against, uh, you see it, it completely contradicts uh, all of the other religions, but it is the underpinning. But here's the other important point about what's happening today. Uh, We are really in our infancy, uh, that is humans, in terms of evolving social and political systems. We've really only tried two, capitalism and communism, and we've talked about this before. People think they started uh, quite separately in time. That is that capitalism evolved out of, of Darwin 
you know, survival of the fittest, which, of course, again, the, the free will of, of the, the individual. But communism, the manifesto, was published before Darwin's Origin of Species was published. That's right. And, and what's been happening in the Western world especially has been popular revolutions. Now, everybody points at the French Revolution as the first attempt by the ordinary people to get rid of this monarchical system. But the French Revolution was an absolute failure. You, you can argue that, oh, France is free will. It isn't. To give you an idea, Giscard d'Estaing, who became the prime minister of France, that wasn't his family name. He bought that name from an aristocratic family that had died out. Because you need the letter or the word D, D-E, in your name, like Charles de Gaulle, because that indicates that you were an aristocrat, okay? And uh, so it's the same in Britain. They had the Magna Carta, and, and John Kennedy and all of them uh, pointed at that and said, oh, no, there's the rights of the individual. Absolute rubbish. The Magna Carta was all about these powerful landowners that were appointed and given huge territories in England by William the Conqueror, but the king was the most powerful of those landowners. Well, John, the king, started to do things that those big landowners didn't like. So they ordered uh, him to meet with them at Runnymede, and they forced, they forced him to sign an agreement not to, to do anything they didn't like. It had nothing to do with the peasant who was still working and slaving as a slave on the on the uh, lord's land and you notice that it doesn't say every man's every englishman's home is his castle why do they say it's his castle because that's what it is it's nothing to do with the the hovel that the peasant owned now the people's revolution never occurred in britain and other countries and by the way marx got it wrong because marx thought that the uh, revolution is Marxist revolution would occur in Britain and Germany. And it didn't occur there because the people in power were smart enough to just to pretend to give away power. And, and the revolution occurred in, in Russia, but it failed there. And Marx said it would fail there because there was no middle class in, in Russia. The middle class were all the army and the army was comprised of, of aristocratic officers. And so when the people in England decided to have a revolution, they couldn't do it there. It was done. It happened in America because all the people that led the American Revolution were emigres. They were immigrants into America. I mean, okay, some were, were native born, but they still had immediate family back in England. Franklin's a very good example. He visited his English family quite often. But they were all Englishmen that, uh, that actually created a true people's revolution. That, of course, uh, only went through two phases. It went through the constitutional phase and it went through the political phase. It is now in the process of going through the control of information phase because these groups always control the information. It is the, uh, the high priests and their vestal virgins and the keeping of the flame and all of that. And it was the uh, aristocracy and, and the, the um, spies that the royalty had. But now with the Internet, you've got the, the power of information to every individual. And, of course, that's under attack. That's why Obama's trying to shut it down. That's why Russia recently announced they're going to start limiting the Internet 
Putin is trying to uh, establish another totalitarian uh, left-wing dictatorship. And, and uh, this is what's happening. And um, it's going on in these elections. It's being done by control of, of the information by the polling companies. One of the interesting aspects of both the British election and the Cameron, uh, the Alberta election, the last election here in British Columbia, every single poll was 100% wrong. And there are now lawsuits threatened against the BBC who were putting out polls saying the Labour Party is going to win, the left-wing party is going to win. They were even saying that an hour after the exit polls were showing a conservative majority. And of course, it wasn't what the, the reality was. It was what they wanted the reality to be. And that's what happened in Alberta. It's clearly going on here in Canada. The polls, Ipsos polls, for example, showing that the liberals are going to win and so on. And what's very interesting is, of course, the public now, because of the Internet, are far more sophisticated, far better informed of the reality and are not being, are not being taken in. And so the results end up being in contradiction to the polls, as, as we've seen now in all these recent elections. Yeah, the fraud and the chicanery knows no bounds here. It is really quite staggering how much we are duped by this bought and paid for media. Because, I mean, look, at they're going to tell us what they want us to know. And it's like, hey, welcome to the 6 o'clock news. We're going to tell you what we want you to know. I mean, whatever happened to good, solid journalism? And every day we see more and more of our rights being eviscerated. It's frightening what's happening with this gun grab. What's so fascinating to me is, think about what Yamamoto, the Japanese admiral of the whole combined fleet, this is the commander-in-chief of the Japanese Think about a statement he made years ago, and this is what is so surprising to me, Tim. It's Hillary and these other leftists, their relentless quest for the guns. I mean, Hillary Clinton recently said that repealing the Second Amendment is worth considering, even though she wants to arm ISIS-linked Syrian rebels who are executing Christians. Are you out of your mind? So back to the Yamamoto quote. Think about this. You cannot invade the mainland United States there would be a rifle behind every blade of grass. You know, we are getting the kitchen sink thrown at us. It's death by a thousand cuts. It's very much the frog getting acclimated to the boiling water. It's a total desensitization. Yep. You look back over your many years, Tim. I mean, is there anything right now that absolutely stuns you as you look back over the last 30, 40, 50 years? Well, no, nothing really, because, of course, I'm a student of history, real history, because, you know, Santayana, the, the uh, South American commentator, said about history that historians are greater than God because they can change history and he can't. So I prefer to go back and, and read what the opponents to the, the powers that be were saying, because that's where the, the real story is found. Um, somebody also said that history is written by the victors, and that is so true. And so the history that's put out in the schools is totally distorted. 
it's totally false information, but you can find, and again, this is where the internet and, and all of this information is so valuable. If you go and look what the opponents to the people in power were saying, then look at what the people in power are saying. And that's the only way that you can discern the reality. And of course, what you throw into that mix is human nature as it really is. Human nature as, uh, as, as God made it and as, as Christians understand. And as the founding fathers understood, they understood that humans are not perfect, that we have our weaknesses and, and that the devil will exploit those. They understood that. But of course, how did the Catholic Church take control of people? They said, oh, yeah, you're born with original sin, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll baptize you and absolve you of that. And then, oh, now you're in our control. Oh, and by the way, if we haven't got total control of you, then we will give you communion when you're seven years old and uh, further enchain you into our doctrinaire way of thinking. And of course, I find it very interesting that uh, the person who said, give me the child and I'll give you the adult, was Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, and the current pope is a Jesuit. And he's the first Jesuit in history to become a pope, because, of course, he espouses that philosophy. And, and so when you put things in historical context, you can, you can see what's going on, this gradual erosion of freedoms the control by the individual and the rights of the individual. Uh, and people forget, again, go back to the American Constitution. And you can read Washington said, you know, don't elect anybody that wants to be your leader because all you're going to get is somebody who will be very corruptible to power. Now, he didn't add that part to it, but that's what he was implying. And they also recognized, as I said, that people were easily led, easily duped. That's why everybody, you know, the, the, the people in Britain and even Canadians sneer at the Americans for having so many elections and ongoing elections, you know, no longer finish one and the next one's on. Well, it was done deliberately in order to prevent anybody being in power for too long to uh, any demagogue to grab the power. But they also put in place things to protect the ordinary citizen against their own government. The First Amendment was free speech, the right to say and challenge your government. That was the whole point. And then they gave you the Second Amendment in order to protect you from your own government. And one of the things, that the, in other words, the militia, that's what Yamamoto was talking about when he talked about a gun behind every blade of grass. But what people forget about the Second Amendment was that it, it also says that every citizen must provide billeting for the militia soldiers. In other words, that you as a citizen must provide support for that fellow citizen militia who is going to, to need your, or your food and your housing in order to fight the government for you. And, of course, the other thing that was fascinating about the American Revolution was that the pamphlets that were published and circulated, and, of course, Benjamin Franklin with his printing press uh, as a printer, the pamphlets that they circulated were so important in 
bypassing the official control of the media, the official control of the of whatever outlets of information there were. The pamphlets were the modern revolutionary equivalent of the blog sites now on the internet. And so you, you see the parallels. But just to give you an example of how history is rewritten by the victors, in my lifetime, when I was a child, I was taught that King Canute, spelled C-A-N-U-T-E, was the worst and stupidest king in English history. It turned out that he, in fact, was one of the best kings in English history. But why was I taught in school that he was the stupidest? I was taught that he was so stupid that he believed that he could even control the tides. And he had his, his uh, throne taken down to the beach and when the tides came in, he said, stop. And of course, it washed right over him. And I was told that this was proof of how stupid he was. Well, it's since been discovered through uh, people digging into the, through freedom of information and getting access to all of the documents in Parliament and in the, the royal family. And, and, and by the way, if you want to look at control of power, the queen believes that every single gift she was given and her family have been given over the centuries belongs to her. They have 60 Leonardo da Vinci paintings and notebooks and stuff in Windsor Castle that the public are not even allowed to see. It is absolutely incredible, the arrogance of that. But anyway, uh, they discovered that what happened with King Canute was he was a Danish king his brother, Harold Hadratty, uh, was, was invaded um, in, in Yorkshire, North England, and were, were pushed back. But anyway, um, he was a Danish king, and he was absolutely revered. He was a brilliant leader, a great natural leader, and he realized that people thought he could do everything. And he wanted to prove to them that there were things that he had no control over. It is akin to the biblical thing, Mark 12, 17, I believe it is, that render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And so what, what uh, Canute did was uh, he said, look, there are things that I can't control. I'll show you. Take my throne down to the beach and I'll try and stop the tide and I won't be able to do it. Well, of course, the people that, that replaced Canute the Dane were the Anglo-Saxons. And they wanted to show that he was the stupidest king ever, and they were superior, so they rewrote the history. And one of the features of communism is you rewrite the history. What Putin and, and the gang did, or uh, and Gorbachev, they started writing Stalin out of the history and, and rewriting the history. It's going on in the United States now, uh, trying to get rid of the uh, Confederate flag. Yes, it represented uh, what, what wasn't a particularly good uh, period in American history, if you want to look at it that way, but it, it existed. To say that you can't have it or you, you can't, you've got to get rid of it and eliminate it is simply rewriting history and ignoring the realities and ignoring the lessons that it can teach. Well, it's funny you mentioned there's a theme here developing and it's rewriting yep. history, controlling the narrative. And yep. let's face it, people gladly give up their liberty and comforts against a dreaded threat. And it's always the classical Hegelian dialect, war is one way, this dreaded yep. enemy throughout history, because when governments are losing with the people, they 
They manufacture false flag operations. They rally the citizens and brand people as traitors and unpatriotic. Machiavelli wrote about this. You know, when diplomacy fails, war is an extension of politics. You talked about a state militia earlier. You know, the necessity of a state militia promotes this, you know, concept of armed citizenry. So when you think about society, religion, science, it all rests on the security provided by the military. We need to really stop listening to the rhetoric and look at really what is going on because it really is a rigged boxing match, isn't it, Tim? Totally. And and we've got proof of that here in Canada. And again, this illustrates the difference between Canada and the U- the U.S., because, of course, the gun laws in Canada are incredibly strict. And, and they introduced, uh, when, the, when the left wing were in power under the liberals, they uh, introduced gun registry. And a, a friend of mine said, there's no way. I, I need my gun to fight my government. And during the, when the Quebec separatists wanted to separate Quebec from Canada, the liberal Trudeau, the great uh, old philosopher king he called he declared the war measures act now what was the war measures act the war measures act said that if the government decide that there's a group that's threatening canada they can declare the war measures act which which means that all individual rights are surrendered you surrendered every right you have to the government, and the government then takes control. And Trudeau used the Canadian army to suppress his own, their own people, the Canadian people. There were armed troops in, in Quebec arresting Quebecers. It was the Canadian military that did that. Now, of course, this is one of the things that people think Obama's doing, that he's arming a, a police force. Um, and and he's li- he's restricting the uh, U.S. military because he doesn't want he, you know he, it, it's that same problem he does he can't do it as as Trudeau was able to do it here in Canada and and another example of of it of course and I've written about this extensively in the Second World War in Britain. The minute Chamberlain declared war, every single individual right of every Englishman was surrendered. Now, people were willing to do that on the belief that the the greater threat was Germany and Hitler and that they were prepared to surrender their individual rights for for a while. But they assumed that after the war, they would get them back. But of course. Okay, but what happened after the war? Within three months of the end of the war, the conservative leader, Winston Churchill, who totally believed in individual rights and individual freedoms, was thrown out of power. And Clement Attlee took over power, and he was a socialist, and he immediately introduced total educational control, the grammar school system. He introduced the social health care system. In other words, he created a total socialist control of Britain. Now, Canada essentially had somewhat the same thing. Now, the, the difference was that Canadians were not required to surrender quite as many individual rights because uh, they lived under the illusion that, that, that Canada the land of Canada could not be attacked, that we were far enough removed. That's also, of course, what underlay the whole isolationism in the United States. But uh, when you look at, at Britain, and I was living there during the war, I know what my parents went through. I know that my mother 
uh, had one overcoat, and of course it was very cold, her top coat is very cold in the 1940s. She needed a new coat. She had to get a stamp from the government and had to prove to the government that the coat she had was inadequate, and only then could she get a new coat. Now, I mean, when you're controlling even the clothing that people can wear, that is totalitarianism of the extreme. Yes. And so, as you said, yes, what they'll do is the governments will manufacture an outside threat. Now, what greater one, and this is what we've seen with the climate issue that you wrote about, and and I've written a great deal about, you wrote about in Green Gospel, what greater threat than, oh, the climate's changing. That's beyond what any national government or any individual can handle. You need a world government run by us to stop that. And oh, and by the way, you'll have to stop driving your car and you'll have to stop doing this and stop doing that because we've got to fight this evil threat. It's all part of the same game. Well, and you know, you talked a little bit about the Canadian War Measures Act. It reminds me, Tim, a lot of the NDAA, the Patriot Act, with elements, though, of the TPP. Now, this TPP is a sci-fi. That's what I call it. I mean, you know, you look back in the history, I mean, NAFTA, CAFTA, as Dave said, we're getting the SHAFTA. I mean, if you look at some of these nightmarish trade agreements, but TPP is really, it really takes totalitarianism, you mentioned that word, to a whole new level, doesn't it? Well, it does, because one of the things is that these power elite make deals between nations that commit to supporting each other. I mean, one of the ways uh, uh, the the Russian Revolution occurred uh, was they were in the middle of the First World War. Lenin's going around saying, look, uh, we've got to stop this, get, get Russia out of this war. He couldn't do it because, of course, the Russian army, as I mentioned earlier, was made up of, of officers from the uh, aristocratic ranks, families like Tolstoy and so on. So what, what Lenin did was he took all of the secret treaties that had been written by the czars and he showed them to the Russian troops. And he said, look, you're fighting, you're dying. They've already prearranged who will get what territory and who will be in control after the war is over. So you're, you're dying for nothing. And at that point, the troops put their uh, guns down and didn't matter what the officers did. The, the troops said, no, we're not fighting anymore. Of course, uh, Lenin used these treaties in order to take control for himself. But, but of course, that's the thing. If you get w- rid of one totalitarian, it's invariably you're being duped by another totalitarian. It's why, of course, that, um, that the, all of these treaties are created and they tie people in. Now, if, if the listener thinks about this, any pact or treaty that you make, even between two people, and everybody understands about marriage and the contractual arrangement, arrangements and so on, you get married because there is mutual benefit in getting married, or at least you hope there is, you believe there is. <laughs> but in making that mutual benefit, you both get something, but you must never forget that you both surrender something. You make a decision. You say, no, okay, I'll surrender some of my own personal individual freedoms in order to, for this relationship from which we can both gain cooperatively. In other words, 
as you make treaties, the more and more people involved in the treaty, the wider the treaty, the more freedoms that you give up. Now, one of the things that um, uh, you mentioned, well, the NAFTA, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but one of the things that got Britain into the war was that the, the French had made a treaty with Poland, which said, if you're attacked, we will consider that attack on France and we'll support you. France then made a treaty with Britain that committed Britain to all the treaties that France was committed to. They didn't tell the British that about this tra treaty with Poland. So when Poland was attacked by Hitler, then France was committed to defending Poland and that dragged Britain into the war. And, and so this is, this is the difficulty with all these treaties. But what you really need to look at with a treaty is not what the treaty, what the people that have signed the treaty are telling you. It's what they're not telling you. Now, get back to the NAFTA treaty, the North American Free, Tree, Free Trade Agreement. There was already 80% free trade between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, particularly, particularly between Canada and the U.S., 80% free trade. In fact, there was more free trade between Canada and the U.S. than there is even now between the Canadian provinces. So why, then, was the free trade agreement the NAFTA written? Well, the answer is you look at what didn't they talk about, because that is always the hidden agenda. What did they not include in their discussions? And the answer with NAFTA was water. The whole NAFTA agreement was about the total continental sharing of water, that America wanted access to a Canadian water because the Jeffersonian doctrine was the manifest destiny that America was created to control the North American continent, and therefore there should be a, a continental water policy. Now, how does that fit in? Well, the chief negotiator for water for the NAFTA for America was Clayton Yoder. And Yoder had been Secretary of Agriculture under Ronald Reagan. His doctoral thesis was on the need for a continental water policy. And after retiring as Secretary of Agriculture for Reagan, he spent three years with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers estimating how much fresh water there was in Canada. On the other side of the table, it was uh, the Canadian notion negotiator was a guy by the name of Simon Reisman. And Simon Reisman was a consultant who had worked for a company called the Grand Canal Company, which is a company that plans to put a dam across James Bay, pump out the saline water or brackish water, let it fill up with fresh water, pump that fresh water down through Lake Huron and the Great Lakes into the Chicago River and out to the American Midwest. In other words, both of the negotiators were experts in a continental water policy. And that, of course, is what the whole NAFTA agreement was about. And again, you see people say, well, oh, well, they don't even mention water in NAFTA. Yes, ask yourself why. This is always the issue. It's the thing that they don't talk about that is really at, at the heart. It's, I was on a radio program um, out of Moscow the other day, and the interviewer said to me, well, you know, we've never heard any of this stuff about CO2. And I said, yes, 
ask yourself why. Check on the facts that I'm telling you. And when they're confirmed, as they will be, ask yourself why you haven't been told. And that, of course, is back to this control of information and, again, the importance of the Internet. Whenever there's a coup, in a traditional coup, what's the first thing that they do? They take control of the means of communication. What was one of the great bastions of transmitting freedom in the Cold War was Radio Free America. I remember uh, as a child listening to crystal sets of broadcasting into Germany. By the way, here's an interesting part about the Second World War. And, and I told you the story about having two German prisoners of war working for us. And we can talk about that another day. But there were thousands of German prisoners in Britain and Italian prisoners. None escaped. Not one. Only one German prisoner escaped from an Allied prison camp, and that was a guy that was in a prison camp in Canada, in a logging camp in Ontario. He got out and got down to Mexico. Why did then hundreds of Allied prisoners in German prison camps escape and get out of, of Germany and back to Britain? And the answer is, of course, because the People were totally in support of defeating Hitler. They were totally behind what their government was doing. But the German people weren't. The German people, the majority of them, despised and hated Hitler. And um, I'm, as I said, I mentioned the, the prisoner of war that we had one working for us. He'd owned a jewelry shop in Berlin before the war, and he was 42 when the war began. And he knew that they were going to... Uh, come and get him if he didn't go and sign up so he went and signed up and and then immediately surrendered and gambled on the british winging winning or the allies winning and um but what what happened was those prison prisoners that were considered trustees were allowed to go and and work uh, and we had some land that the government decreed we had to produce food on and so they delivered Wilhelm to come and help us and work uh, for us on that land. So those kinds of stories are the things that tell you a great deal about the difference between governments and the people and, and the, the disparities between them and what's really going on. And as G.K. Chesterton once said, if you remove a belief in, in one thing, people don't replace it with, with another thing. They will replace it with anything. In other words, they're very uh, vulnerable to the devil's word. And, of course, that's what we've seen with the left. You remove Christianity, and therefore the people are uh, very vulnerable, and they're absolutely lost. And, of course, you see the constant attack in the United States to separate religion and, and state, and the ACLU at the center of that. But where were the ACLU when the Pope visited the United States and spoke before the Congress? That should never have been allowed. The ACLU didn't say a word. Why? Because the Pope was pushing his Marxist message and pushing what the Obama and Democrats wanted. You see all of these things manifesting themselves in behavior, but people just sort of uh, almost shrugged their shoulders and 
they don't realize this is the drip, drip, drip of how these people work and how you so well documented in your book. And you and I have discussed so many times. And here's what we see behind it all. Think of this quote, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. That's Adolf Hitler who said that. And in 1938, Hitler ordered all German children to be educated either in state schools or in government-approved private schools, and they were strictly following the Nazi blueprint. They had a compulsory education law, which specifically, Tim, banned homeschooling. And that remains in force in Germany today. And that they're looking at even doing that. Well, look at the forced vaccination policies. They say, hey, if your kids aren't immunized, then, well, they can't come to school. So you add common core into the mix. I mean, it is frightening how many parallels there is between today's United States of America to, you know, 1930 Nazi Germany. It The themes and the practices and the methods, that's why at the beginning of this program, I said, you know, you've got to go back and look at history, but not the history that, that you're indoctrinated with, but the history that uh, really went on. It's why I go and read Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire and, and why I go and read Martin Luther's 93 Theses that he supposedly nailed on the church door at, at Wittenberg, George Orwell's Animal Farm. All they do is change the names. I was contacted uh, about a year ago by a a science broadcaster in Romania, and he wanted to do a program on climate because he had written a book on climate, and he started to do his research and discovered my work. And um, again, he, he came up against this, well, why wasn't I told this stuff? So he contacted me, and I ended up doing... Uh, I think it ended up as five one-hour Skype programs with him that you can Google uh, Romanian TV. It was absolutely stunning. And I said to him, well, why did you not know about this skeptical side of things? And he confirmed something that I had seen all along. And that is, yes, all of these countries that were under the heel of communism, when they were released after the collapse of communism... The communist leaders simply changed, most of them simply changed their name and said, we're Democrats, but they stayed in power. And so they continued with totalitarian governments. So this this is what's going on today. That's what we see happening. Tim, don't you find it so interesting? And I, I find this just absolutely so intriguing that this morning, the Financial Times was saying that global companies are signing a White House pledge on climate change action. And Obama said in an interview a week ago, well, you know, the U.S. is leading on climate change on the heels of that. Yet Obama's really pushing for the guns. I find it so interesting. The harder he pushes for climate change and a regime, the harder they're going for the guns. So those two things together really denote something, don't they? Yes. Well, what they denote is this. There is an economic futurist by the name of Eric Heilbronner, H-E-I-L-B-R-O-N-N-E-R. And he pointed out that now, of course, the system we have now are the nation states that Woodrow Wilson set up under the United Nations. And of course, then each, each state is beholden to the United Nations. One of the purposes of the Kyoto Accord was to create a global carbon tax, which would be f- collected by the International Monetary Fund, which would then fund this national one world government. But 
Halbronner pointed out that what's replacing the nation states is the multinational. Now think about that name. A multinational, as he pointed out, is the new form of, of government in that they're not answerable to anybody. Uh, if you don't like, if you're a multinational and you don't like the country in which you're uh, a parasite, because that's exactly what you are, you just simply say, well, you know, if you don't uh, let me do what I want to do and control things the way I want to run them, I'll simply move my headquarters somewhere else. And, and as you know, they have these places like the Channel Islands, um, and, and they did it with shipping to get away from control of shipping. The great shipping magnets had these flags of convenience, places like Liberia, where you could go and register your ship and operate completely independent of any, any individual or the citizens' desires. And multinationals operate that way as well. When you look at, at the monarchy in Britain wanted to get into the new commerce of the Industrial Revolution, what did they do? They created multinational corporations. The Dutch East India Company was a classic. Right. The Hudson Bay Company. Who owned the Hudson Bay Company? The British royal family. And they still own uh, shares in it. And, and to the point where every year the Hudson Bay Company that used to go and give two beaver, live beaver, to the royal family. And when the Hudson Bay Company amalgamated with the Northwest Company, and the Northwest Company was made up of individuals from Quebec and from Scotland that were running their own fur company in competition with the Hudson Bay Company, they didn't like that. And so there was an amalgamation, a forced amalgamation. And at the time, the Hudson Bay Company, which was only controlling 10% of the fur trade, but controlling one-twelfth of the world's land surface, they, 10% uh, of the total trade, took over the Northwest Company, which had 90% of the trade. So how did this smaller company take over the bigger company? And by the way, the, the legal contract ran to 26,000 pages. But how did they manage that? Well, the answer was because the Hudson Bay Company was controlled by the royal family and they had the rights to access to the heart of North America through Hudson Bay. And so you see that the uh, corporations become the tool of the people in power and they float independent of nation states. Yes. And of course, within the nation states, America being the classic example, uh, you have these multinational corporations operating independently. And, and this is another part that, again, once you understand the history, you understand what is going on. It's frightening when you were talking. I kept thinking about this Trans-Pacific Partnership because yep. it really is a global corporate noose around U.S. local, yep. state, and national sovereignty. You know, these yep. corporate indentured politicians keep calling this gigantic treaty with 30 chapters of only, by yep. the way, which five really relate to even traditional trade issues. The other 25 chapters, Tim, if they're passed, they are going to have serious ramifications and incredible impacts on people's livelihoods as workers, consumers. 
air, water, yep. food, medicines, you name it. And the bottom line is this TPP, another word for it should be totalitarianism, yep. back to what we yep. talked about. Yeah, incidentally, one of the things when I talked about uh, France committing Britain to defend Poland, one of the things about the deal with Iran, which Obama signed into, it's now a law, he signed that today. One of the things says that if Iran is attacked, America must defend it. Yes. That means that if Israel attacks Iran, America must attack Israel. Totally frightening. Because, of course, who is the greatest enemy of Israel but Iran? And now you've got Iran and Syria being supported by Putin and Russia the problem with that is that if Israel wants to attack Iran, they have to fly through the Russian Air Force, which is defending Syria. And that cuts off the chances of Israel being able to bomb the nuclear facilities in Iran. These are all things that are in the pact and, and the public are not aware of. But there's another very important part of the TPP. And we look at what I talked about earlier, about what is not talked about I heard a talk years ago in Bismarck, North Dakota, part of what they call the Northwest Farmers Group in the U.S. These are massive landowners of agricultural land in the American Midwest. And the speaker was one of the early U.N. representatives to the U.N. And he said, I want to predict to you where the world's going in the next 40 years in terms of control and the challenge for governments. He took a pen out of his pocket and he said, turned to the guy next to him. He said, okay, if I sell you that pen, you have the pen. I no longer have the pen. There's complete transfer of property. But he said, here's the challenge that the world is confronted with. Because now, not only is there transfer of goods, but there's also transfer of services. Now, what does services mean? It means ideas. And he said, if I sell you, turning to the guy again, if I sell you an idea, you have the idea but I still have the idea, which mm. means that the value of the idea is halved immediately. And then the more you sell the idea, the more it's devalued. And the challenge is, in this world of ideas and services, how do you sell an idea yet still retain its value? And he said, what you're going to see is an absolute proliferation of intellectual property control, of copyright, of plagiarism. And what do we see going on? Espionage. And then one of the one of the things in the TPP is they're trying to control this control of ideas and yet still retain its economic value. And that is really at the heart of this TPP control. So it's a continuation of the multinational control thing that we talked about with the Hudson Bay Company. And that was a national corporation. So as again, you can see all of this with the TPP and what's happening. It's all about control, not only of goods, and but also about services, about ideas, and about people. And we, you and I have joked about this before. The guy standing on the soapbox at Hyde Park Corner, the only place in Britain and the British Empire where you could say what you wanted about the government not be arrested. And a guy saying, come the revolution, we'll all be able to do this, we'll all be able to do that. And, go to, and finally, he said, come the revolution, we'll all be able to wear shirts and ties. And the guy at the back says, I don't want to wear a shirt and tie. And the guy 
says, come the revolution, you'll do what you're bloody well told. <laughs> and, and that, that is summarizes where we're the whole thing. Yep. And isn't that really where we're at? Well, Tim, you ended on a perfect note. Knowledge is power and educating yep. yourself is so important. And that's really what we try to do on these programs. We are making an impact. I think we are. And one of the things that people say, why do you keep talking? Why do you keep writing? And I, I say, look, I don't want anybody ever to be able to say they weren't told. We need to make people think about what they're being told and, th and think about the, the other side of the story and what they're not being told. And I think that you, what you're doing provides that opportunity. And I thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that, Tim. And as well, that is very much reciprocated. Tim, it is always such an honor, such a privilege and a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for your time and do come back and see us soon. I will be very happy and proud to. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Tim. Folks, that was Dr. Timothy Ball. His information is linked there at weekendvigilante.com. Tomorrow on the program, Russ Dizdar, Thursday, Steve Quayle and David Langford, and Friday, Miss Carla Butad. It's going to be a fantastic week. Thank you so much for tuning into the broadcast. See you tomorrow. Good night and God bless.